Welcome to the Dairy Farmer's Digest, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. Super pumped here. It's corn silage season kind of right upon us. And uh, I've got uh, Dr. Bill Mahana back on the podcast here. He's the uh, Global Nutrition Sciences Manager with uh, Pioneer and Professor Emeritus at Iowa State University. So, Bill, third time on the podcast, and I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I enjoy it. Yeah, it's fun to get together and share some what we're seeing in the field. So how have things been in, uh, like, where is I- Johnson City? Is that in Western Iowa? No, it's right in the middle part of the state. Johnson okay. is where yep. um, Pioneer is headquartered, and um, it's basically a suburb of Des Moines. I so, know nobody's ever ever heard of Des Moines, but it's the, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the third largest insurance center in the world. Really? London, England, Hartford, Connecticut, Des Moines, Iowa. So even in down times, we seem to not have too bad an economy here because uh, we've got insurance guys, and I've never known an insurance company to lose money. No, they're pretty tight-pocketed. I, uh, I've, I've had that experience in the past. With them. <laughs> <laughs> it's so also a headquarters it? for uh, not only Pioneer, but uh, it's a headquarters for John Deere Worldwide Credit. Okay. So um, we have a nice, we have a very, obviously, Iowa's only a little over 3 million people, um, and we are really very much an agricultural economy here in central part of the United States. Yeah, well, I know corn is the, the number one there, and hogs, I think they're the number one hog uh, hog state, too, I believe. Yeah, we're number one hogs. We're also number one in terms of uh, layers, egg production. Iowa's okay. number one, and number one in soybeans. And I've heard, uh, it's funny, we had a, uh, I was at a farm and they had a, a fella from, I think he was from La Crosse, Wisconsin, and uh, he worked with a genetic company and I was asking him, you know, where's the best place to dairy in the U.S.? He goes, Western Iowa, without even skipping a beat, he goes, that's God's country there. So. <laughs> yeah. I uh, drove through Western Iowa last week, went up the I-29 corridor, we call it, that's the highway that goes up South Dakota, North Dakota, um, and there's a lot of dairy along that I-29 corridor. And the reason being very few people, terrific uh, corn growing area. Uh, so a lot of Dutch farmers have, have settled in that area. Uh, a lot of California dairies came out. The, the, one, of the, one of their mistakes is they held on to the same, same system that they had in California where they only bought a limited amount of ground when they moved and, and relied on neighbors to sell them feed. And I think in retrospect, they would have wished they would have bought more ground because when corn prices went out of sight, uh, they really felt it, whereas, you know, they could have grown their own crops. But uh, yeah, it's, it is God's country. I was in North Dakota the first time. First time in, I've been applying here 35 years, the first time I ever set foot in North Dakota. And I was, uh, I was very impressed beautiful ground just beautiful ground what i was surprised by is i went to uh, 1600 cow dairy up in carrington north dakota beautifully managed dairy typical uh, dutch family came over went to canada first uh, and then came down to north dakota and um and beautiful but there's very little livestock we had to drive like two hours north of 
Fargo to find a dairy. I mean, a yeah. big dairy, but uh, surprising that there weren't more livestock in North Dakota. And and I find out later on, part of it was their uh, legislature had passed some laws about corporate farming. We all know corporate farming really doesn't exist. It's family corporations from a tax perspective. Yeah. But I think, and, and what I heard from Western, some some of our growers in Western Minnesota is that the North Dakota legislature was changing some of their laws because they realized South Dakota was cleaning up in terms of Dairy's wanting to move in there, uh, and North Dakota's kind of, kind of behind the time. So maybe that'll change. But they I saw a the, lot of corn, saw a lot of down corn. Unfortunately, they had a big windstorm go through Western Canada. I uh, was sorry, uh, Western uh, Iowa. I, I was in Morris, Minnesota, where um, Riverview Dairy. Some of you ought to look up on the internet about Riverview Dairies, but milking about one hundred twenty-five thousand cows on numerous sites, but. Um, met at their headquarters in Morris, Minnesota, talked about some of the same things we're going to talk about, Keith, in terms of this year's harvest and harvest timing and chop height and chop length and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's timely to have this uh, get together. Yeah, and I was just, uh, I had kind of avoided going into cornfields until about last week because I just didn't want to get excited about anything. But the crop like just doing some quick ear counts and some kernel counts and things like that like i don't know if producers are going to be super happy with yields this year like i think everybody we've been really wet in ontario and uh, especially kind of down in the west and the southwest and it just doesn't seem like we have the kernel counts that we should considering the amount of water we've had and we've also had a lot of smoke this summer. So I don't know if that's been kind of the same through the Midwest or not, but I'm wondering if it has an effect on on what pollination or anything to do with, with yield right now. So Yeah, it does affect our agronomy folks who have, have put out a crop insights about that. Um, yeah, it, it certainly it hasn't been too bad here, at least in Iowa. Um, but yeah, I, I think it definitely can have an effect. In, in fact, I, I've been to China several times and our corn breeders in China actually purposely select for hybrids that can perform under lower solar radiation because China, the growing environment is just nasty in terms of environmental pollution. So we actually select hybrids that can, can, can handle that. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer. Like the ear count that I did was roughly around 200, give or take a couple bushel. And we're still pretty early stages of kernel fill and the kernels look deep. So like there's some, I think some good test weight potential. Um, but I think some expectations have been record crop, record crop, record crop. And I just find that it seems like on a drier year or at least on a year where you get a little bit more timely rains, like the bins will bust where we get into these kind of wetter, cooler years is we kind of set ourselves up for a little bit of disappointment. I guess would be the right uh, the right word. Driving around um, North Dakota with a lot of miles with nothing to see, I was listening to I can't remember the name of the organization, but they do a, a tour. Um, Chip Flory is involved. They do a tour through the Midwest to look at yields, and, and Illinois was uh, up about three percent from last year. Iowa was a little bit spotty, but on average. Uh, probably going to be up a little bit. So I think it's going to be for us here. I think it's going to be in the in the 
what we call the I states. Yeah. Uh, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, where we really produce the most corn. I think yields are going to be pretty good. It, certainly, certainly with last year for sure. Yeah. And the other thing too, I think we're running a few days behind on growing day degree days or running behind on crop heat units. Like it hasn't been a warm summer. It's been, it's been good. Like it's been nice, but it's been three days of rain. Now saying that our producers bunks are full of haylage. So I think coming into corn silage, we're going to have to have those conversations about high chopping and things like that, just because the corn is pretty tall. And I, and I haven't had a drone up. So I kind of wonder what the crop actually looks like away from the road. So was the moisture, Keith, um, was it pretty wet early on during the vegetative growth of the plant or do we want to it was super dry. Like we had a really, really dry spring. Like it seemed like until about, we didn't have much rain from, I would say the end of April or maybe the 10th of May till pretty much the end of June. But then since then it's been rain, rain, rain. So so you may it be was, surprised because what we see is that if we have a drier than normal vegetative growth of the plant, fiber digestibility is usually really good. Um, so, you know, pretty much, <clears throat> pretty much fiber digestibility is determined during the vegetative stage. Once we hit, once we hit the R stage, reproductive stage, or silking uh, stage of corn growth, um, fiber digestibility has been set. It's determined. Yeah. Uh, and it's the weather growing environment after that that it really influences, like you're saying, starch deposition. So you, maybe the starch might be a little bit lower, um, but it, I would kind of sounds like with tall. So with taller plants, you know, typically would say, well, you know, that maybe that maybe we would gain from high chopping, but you might want to test some of that. In fact, it was interesting. Uh, I just saw a data set that our dairy specialist in Wisconsin and Minnesota sent me uh, last week. On about six dairies, he chopped corn silage at eight inches and then again at 20 inches. Now, there's a lot of variation within a field due to the water holding capacity of the soil and everything else. But what we what on average really was only increasing, going from eight inches to 20 inches, uh, we were only increasing the fiber digestibility a couple of points, which probably isn't biologically significant and probably not worth having the yield loss to, to capture that. Whereas in other years, we'll see five, six points higher. Uh, so that's something that, you know, it can be easily done. You try to find some representative plants just to get a little gut feel. It's not real science, but get a little gut feel for, you know, what Mother Nature threw at us, um, you know, going from whatever normal chop height, maybe up to about 20 inches. And you'll give up yeah. about a ton of 30% um, dry matter. Uh, stover for every four inches you raise the cutter height so you know you're losing some significant amount of tonnage too yeah and is that is there any benefit to having like i, I understand like if i guess i gotta preface this so we're coming off a year where we have a lot of haylage like our bunks are busting at the seams people are looking like they don't know where they're going to put forth cut i've seen more farms build bunk in season than I think I ever have in my career this year where farms are like, I got no room. I got to build a bunk. So um, does it make sense, I guess, to high chop and go for higher starch quality? Or I guess, like you said earlier, like we should be jumping in the fields here, take a few representative stock samples just to see where we're at and then kind of make that decision after. Yeah, I think it makes some sense. If you got plenty of inventory with pretty good quality haylage, yeah, why not high chop and give yourself it's something that's going to concentrate the starch more? 
and we do know the lower inner nodes are less digestible. So, yeah, I mean, if I had plenty of inventory, I definitely would be thinking about doing that. Yeah, and then just thinking out loud here about uh, cut length, like how how do we determine that? Like, typically, I would say in Ontario, we're anywhere from 17 to 20 millimeters. Like, does it make sense on a year like this where we tighten that up a little bit or are we just kind of looking for processing score just make sure it's processed the snot out of it and whatever the chop length ends up if it's 15 mil or 18 mil whatever drive on yeah that's one of the things i had listed here to i wanted to talk about is um you know the shorter we chop the more surface area for room and bugs to access the fiber the shorter we chop the better compaction we're going to get the shorter we chop the better the roller mill on the chopper is going to be. But we've got the flip side and a cow needs effective fiber. So it really depends on how long the haylage is or what other sources of length uh, uh, effectiveness are, are in the diet. So if, a, you know, I've been involved with dairies in the West in particular where we're feeding a fair amount of long stem hay and they want to chop the corn silage long. And I say, why? We're already getting enough scratch from the, the hay. Mm -hmm. You might better maybe try to chop that corn silage a little finer. I think that, Keith, the, the, what you said, the 17 to 20 millimeters is the sweet spot. I, I, I don't know if you've seen the work that Minor that, uh, Institute did, but I, I had several conversations with Rick Grant about the studies they've been doing. I, I, in fact, this dairy I was in in, in um, North Dakota, just an excellent managed dairy, 97 pounds in a tank. You, you just couldn't find a better run dairy. And I asked them how long they were chopping their corn silage, and they said an inch because um, their, their nutritionist, you know, wanted that scratch. And I looked at the diet, looked at the TMR, and it, it was nice. There was a little bit of sorting going on, but, you know, not too bad. So I shared with him what I'll tell you guys is this: the work done at Minor showed that they're advocating no longer than 22 millimeters. Now, a lot of us that have shredlage units now in our choppers that do a terrific job of processing the kernels, you know, shredlage, you can go out to, you know, over 30 millimeters uh, and mm -hmm. still get really good kernel damage. And Randy Shaver did several trials at the University of Wisconsin with, with shredlage and showed that, you know, it was great, no, no real sorting going on in that. But what Rick Grant found that's so good, it's, it's with his uh, time budgets for dairy cows, you know, time yep. to eat, time to lay down. Yep. He found that when they got over um, 22 millimeters, cows tend to chew to a, to a, a common uh, particle size before they swallow. And, Going longer did not have any greater effect on buffering the rumen. What it did do is it slowed down eating time. So, uh, the, the, okay. So, I, what I was advocating to the dairyman in North Dakota is to, you know, talk to a nutritionist. I shared it with him the data that Miner had published. Um, and, you know, especially if you got other sources of, of scratch in the diet, I, I would still stick with that. You know, the common thing everywhere is 19 millimeters, three quarters of an inch. To me, is the sweet spot. And even the guys that own shredlage units are, are backing off. You know, I don't know anybody that's, you know, out 30 millimeters. I, I do know that most of them backed off to 24. And and I think I, I'd be advocating to back off to, to 19. Um, because, again, th this time budget work that Rick Grant has done showing that you're not. And they had, you know, they, they had indwelling luminal pH monitoring monitoring and cud chewing activity and having it longer didn't help with buffering the rumen at all, but it did slow down eating time. 
Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I know seeing some treadledge stuff around the countryside here in Ontario, and it seems to be that trend where they've backed off. I think originally they started, you know, 25, 30 mils, and they've backed down to below 20 now, and it makes beautiful silage. So this a couple weeks ago or or maybe a month ago now, I I had a client ask me about some kernel processing scores because they're looking at buying a new chopper. So... I uh, spent some time running around the countryside taking some samples. I think I ended up with 17 or 18 samples from different chopper manufacturers, different farms, different cut lengths, different uh, processors, treadledge, roll offsets, all that other stuff. And it didn't really seem to make a difference on kernel processing necessarily with what their chop length was. Just like anecdotally, like I, I haven't, I haven't sat down and like super analyzed the data, but getting reading about um, kernel processing and chop length, like the list of variables that come that can affect it, the kernel processing score is quite long. So yeah. it seemed like the drier stuff was a little bit uh, not as uh, processed as some, maybe some of the wetter stuff. And yeah, most chop lengths, I guess. There was one that was a real high processing score, and they chopped it very short. Like, a, it might have been three eights it, looking at it. So I was just kind of thinking about that when I have uh, lots of windshield time is, like, what is, I guess, what is going to be our recommendation this year? Because I think it changes year to year, too. But Yeah, and again, if, if they're feeding, if there's going to be a higher inclusion rate of alfalfa because of the inventory you have um yeah and if that's chopped at 19 or 20 millimeters or i you know i personally like to chop haylage a little finer because it's hard to it's hard to face that's like little chunks of rebar yeah in that pile it's hard to get a clean face uh, uh unless you got a mechanical facer um and and i like to little chop little shorter with my haylage where i got more variability and dry matter and that going into a bunker or pit um and a little you know 19 millimeters with my with my corn silage but uh yeah it kind of depends i remember the old you know we, we actually we published the first peer-reviewed work that was ever done on kernel processing along with joe harrison at washington state university um on a dairy out in washington state uh, dick benjamin's dairy and um you know for many years i was more concerned about the gap of the roller mill was being the big driver for how good the processing was and then how worn out the mill, the roller mills are. But shredlage really taught everybody, the whole industry, a lesson that what made shredlage so effective in processing kernels was the fact that the differential between the two rolls was 50%. Mm-hmm. Most roller mills that came out of the factory prior to shredlage, you know, were like 21% differential. In fact, um, some some of the early crones that came out that had the horning roller mill and it was only at a 10% differential. Yeah. Um, I had an experience with a dairy here in Iowa where the and crones are great machines and horning make a great roller mill. But what, what we learned is that when we um, played around with the, with the pulleys and got that differential of the roller mill from the 10 up to 20% or higher, man, we had a big difference in, in kernel processing and, and building a heavier roller mill like what Treadledge is and going to 50%, we really can have, you know, like Randy Shaver's data, they went all the way out to 30 millimeters and still had, you know, high 60s, low 70s for a uh, kernel mm-hmm. processing score. 
So I think in in today, all the all the roller mill manufacturers, um, aftermarket roller mill manufacturers, all have roller mills that you can that are forty to fifty percent differential, and and maybe higher if we're going to put up snappage. So they, you know, Shredlish people. Roger Olson is one of the developers of that. Roger was one of my one of my undergraduate students when I was a prof professor at University of Wisconsin River Falls. So I know Roger very very well, and he did the industry a great service because we got everybody off all the manufacturers about dead center. And now we've got really good processing. And the other thing about that is we don't, we don't see hemorrhagic bowel syndrome like we used to, you know, I, and I still am convinced that uh, bloody gut in dairy cows was related back to really poor kernel processing in high corn silage feeding herds. I troubleshot enough of them that uh, every time I would run into that situation and I would look at the kernel processing, you know, I'd have 12 or 15, whole or half kernels in a 32 ounce cup or for you guys, one liter cup. Uh, <laughs> so the, uh, the, uh, you know, the interesting thing is we just don't see the bouts of hemorrhagic bowel syndrome. We used to, um, and if you look at the scores that, are, you know, Cumberland Valley, Rock River, Dairyland Labs that uh, they've shared with me, um, man, everybody's just doing a great job today. So that that's fantastic. If we're looking at some of those reports, like what, like I know they give you like an inadequate, adequate, and you know, ninety yep. percentile or whatever. Yep. Like, yep. What is the economic value? Say you're in the low sixties. Like, what's the economic value of doing a better job and getting up into the into the seventies? Yeah, good question. Vita Plus uh, feed company in the Midwest did, did a nice study on that, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head here, but I think going from like fifty to sixty was like a couple pounds worth a couple pounds of milk. We developed the test at Pioneer. Yeah. Um, the, the lab test that everybody runs, we've never gotten any credit for it, but we had never a lab credit now, in Don Sapienza and we ran samples with uh, Dave Taysom at Dairyland Labs and Dave Mertens, who before he retired from the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center. And we round robin 32 samples of corn silage between the three of our Rotap machines. And what we, we, we left it up to Dave Mertens to put those thumb rules on it, Keith, because uh, I didn't want to get in hot water with every uh, chopper manufacturer. So so Dave Mertens was the one who kind of put that, you know, less than 50 was poor or, you know, 50 to 60 was marginal over 70 was optimum. I, I really don't think I, I say what I say is high 60s to low 70s. I've seen some kernel processing scores in the 80s. I don't know if you saw any when you sent that. Oh, the highest I had was uh, like 74 and a half, 75. Yeah. Which I thought I don't think was there's much excellent. economic reason to go between. If you're in the high 60s, low 70s, that's the sweet spot. You know, I mean, we can burn a lot more diesel fuel and go from 68 to 72, and I'm not sure it's really worth it. So, and the other thing we can do is we can look, go to the dairy afterwards. The, the interesting thing is to go to the dairy, and we, we did this and presented a paper for a dairy science meeting several years ago um, is we went to dairies and looked at kernel processing score on the corn silage. We, we uh, rotapped and measured uh, micron size on all the high moisture corn or snapage earlage. Uh, we had all that data and then we collected fecal starch samples. And every dairy was under 3% fecal starch. Many of them were, were below 2% or close to 1% fecal starch. The only two dairies that um, had high levels of fecal starch and one was eight and one was one was eight and one was 10% fecal starch. When we went back and looked at the data, 
their high moisture corn was ground the way it should be, but their kernel processing was really poor in their corn silage. So one way we can go back and look is is looking at fecal starches gives us a pretty good indicator. Why should we spend slow down harvest and and burn more diesel fuel if we've got 1% fecal starch? We don't need to do that. Well, and that's the that's the thing I got thinking about after like should I when you're doing something like that like it's not a it's not a very scientific study it's more you know trying to collect some antiquated data and thinking back I'm like I should have grabbed manure samples as well there just to do the comparison on it to see if there's a difference yeah. because that's really the that's the tell of the tape like if that uh if that fecal starch is too high, that's where you're really leaving money on the table. And if you can get exactly. that down below 2%, then maybe a 65 score is, is adequate. It, in my opinion. I, and, and I don't know, yeah. like you're, you're the expert. So a lot of it depends, you know, the rate of passage in the, in the cow, you know, certainly Dr. Fred Owens used to be on our team, uh, professor emeritus from Oklahoma, but he spent the last 10 years of his career with us at pioneer. And is there a need for, kernel processing corn silage goes into beef diets and fred who's you know a god in the fight in the beef world um said you know it's, it's probably marginal the, the value of that because the rate of passage is so much slower in a beef animal than it is a dairy animal so as long as we're kind of getting those kernels somewhat opened up but um but in our in high producing dairy cows with a tremendously quick rate of passage out of the room. And we have to almost pre, pre-digest their feed for them, if you will. That's why we chop it yeah. shorter. That's why we grind corn, you know, to, you know, 1,200 microns or something, or six, you know, not 1,200 microns. It's more like four or 500 microns. Um, but with the beef animals, we don't need to worry about that. Heck, you've probably seen there are some companies that actually recommend feeding whole corn to steers. And, it, you know, it, it depends on how, what Fred always taught me is that it depends in the diet how much cut chewing is going on. If, once you put a bunch of fiber into a diet, animals, beef animals and dairy cows will actually take their tongue and swallow it and then bring back up the cud to really reduce particle size. But if you give them absolutely kind of like zero fiber in, in the diet or a pellet that's giving them fiber, then they'll eat corn more like a more like a, a lamb will they'll chew it more before they swallow it so it goes back okay. to how that animal uh, masticates the feed but in uh, rate of passage is, is the biggest thing that we have to fight in a, in a dairy cow and just to kind of go back to the kernel processing like is there a difference so i was just kind of thinking about this when i'm doing these samples and i did a little bit of just i didn't grab a cup or anything like that but i take a handful and i peel out half kernels or whatever like that just to kind of get an idea is there a difference if you're doing it like vertically versus horizontally because like what's a half kernel like is a half kernel cut in half from top to bottom or is it a half kernel still if it's shredded essentially in half like that because thinking out loud like the kernel processing all that starch is available to the room and bugs but it might not go through the sieve when they're doing the the test on it like when they're doing the shake, like the shaker box test on the, on yeah. the kernels. So the, like, like you're talking using like a Penn State shaker box? No, no, no. Like, cause like to my understanding. In the when they do the, screens? Yeah. Yeah. When they're using the kernel processing score, 
uh, screen. We developed that test in our lab here in Johnson, so I know quite a bit about it. And what we do is we dry down the sample before we put it in there. We don't we don't grind it like most samples are, are done when they go in the lab. The sample comes in whole, it's dried whole, and then we put it in the, the various sieves. But And then we analyze how much starch is on each sieve. So it, it isn't like the Penn State where we've got a thickness uh, to the sieve. The sieves are, are, yeah. are just like wire mesh. So you bring up a good point. Um, yeah, I, I think what happens is is kernels will fall through that a lot easier, Keith. I think that's what you're implying. Will will fall through that quite a bit easier than it might a Penn State. That's why I like the Rotep, yeah. the lab method to look at it. But when I, when I use the cup to go out to the farm from an applied standpoint, I I, I take the third the one liter cup, I fill it full of corn salt. I don't pack it completely. I just scoop, dump it out, spread it out with my fingers. If it's a just a nick out of a kernel, I pull it out. If it's a clean half, and I don't care which way half, if it's a clean half, in other words, if there's a lot of pericarp and the integrity of the pericarp is surrounding the starch, that's going to impede rumen bacteria getting to that starch. So I pull that out. And obviously any whole kernels. If I and if I see two more than two or three of those in a liter volume of silage, I gotta I gotta talk to the guy on the chopper and, and do something. Um any kernel that if I pick it up and it kind of falls apart or it's like you said, if it's if the shredder, that's why the shredlage process does such a nice job. If that kernel's kind of splayed out, um, then I know the I know the rumen bacteria are gonna be able to get to most of that starch. The hardest starch for rumen bacteria to get to is right underneath the pericarp. That is the hardest. So I'm trying to destroy that pericarp so they can get to it. And the other interesting thing is say putting whole corn into a harvester unit or a sealed sealed structure you know that that corn it feeds harvester corn feeds more like dry corn even after even when it's ground coming out of a harvester because it really goes in much drier than normal doesn't really go through an extensive fermentation most people don't realize and if you put whole corn in a harvester the only place it will ferment is at the tip of the kernel and that's because where the that's moisture the is right that's the only place there's no moisture yeah. or enough sugar. Remember, silage yeah. bacteria can't utilize starch. They can only utilize reducing sugar. So um, so I've done some studies to look at what does, you know, does starch, di does ruminal starch digestibility increase over time? We know that happens in corn silage and high moisture corn and snaplage. But it's interesting because coming out of a harvester, it doesn't change that much over the, the entire year in storage because because that pericarp is still intact and we didn't grind it until it came out of the out of the storage structure. So it tends to feed more like dry corn, which you know is not necessarily a problem. In high corn silage diets, we're seeing a trend back towards feeding dry corn as the supplemental source because if we're feeding a lot of corn silage and then we come in with a lot of wet high moisture corn or wet snaplage, um, that's great feed, but I kind of want to be out of it come by February or so, because I've got increasing starch, ruminal starch digestibility coming from the high level of corn silage, and I've got high ruminal starch digestion coming from very wet, high moisture corn or snaplage. So what we're seeing is kind of the lower getting, removing that high moisture corn from the diet and coming in with dry corn. Dry corn has not gone through an, a fermentation process. Therefore, the protective zein uh, protein that surrounds the starch granules is still intact. And as long as we're grinding it to five, six hundred microns, it's it's gonna it's gonna get to the intestines where the the, the intestinal enzymes can digest that starch. So and we I, see a trend 
towards moving towards dry corn late in the season. And that's where we're looking at like hydration lag, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it takes time. Like it's got to be submersed in emulsified essentially before and maybe some of that dry corn is getting down into the it, lower GI tract without having that process happen. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've talked to I've talked to Mike Allen, I've talked to Dave Martins, I've talked to guys that are a lot smarter than than I am in terms of this. And what what I've come to think is that when you feed dry corn in, in high corn silage diets, it's like throwing fish food in a fish tank. What happens is that dry corn eventually hydrates, like you said, and it sinks to the bottom of the rumen. When that dry corn sinks to the bottom of the rumen, it's moving out of the rumen faster than normal because it's moving out on the liquid phase. Liquid dilution turnover rates in the dairy cow are much faster than solid or fiber turnover rates. So what we're doing is we're saying, because there's still that Z and protein around the starch granules, because it has not been fermented. During fermentation, that Z and protein is slowly solubilized away. The dry corn hasn't been fermented. So when you put in the rumen, rumen bacteria can't get to the starch granules as quickly because there's that protective protein coat. But what happens is that sinks to the bottom of the rumen, moves out on the liquid phase, and is digested in the intestines. And we can tell it gets digested because we look at fecal starches and they're below 1%. So all we're trying to do is say, with dry corn, we're shunting some of the starch away from the rumen into the intestines, but we better have it ground fine enough that the intestinal enzymes can digest. So again, it's it's kind of a balancing act, um, you know, w- with this you know rate of passage of the fiber versus the starch, what form is the starch in? Now again, you put high moisture corn or snaplage in that rumen, the the starch the protein has been solubilized away, the starch granules are sitting there naked, rumen bacteria go right after them. And, you know, in the old days, remember, we used to think about all the butterfat test issues we would have in the summer. We don't have that as much anymore because now we know that we need to probably, we understand what's happening in terms of ruminal starch digestion over time with fermented feeds. We have to, you know, adjust that starch level down or else shunt the starch to the intestine so we don't cause ruminal acidosis, which gives us trans fatty acids, which gives us, you know, lower butterfat test. Yeah, and I think the... I guess the industry's got a got a lot better at identifying rufal as well, especially for exactly. the summer because it just seems like if you have that real degradable starch plus high rufal, that's just yeah. a recipe for disaster. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yep, we got we the laboratory people have helped us, and yeah, now we're a little bit smarter. The next kind of thing I was thinking about was. Uh, kind of considerations for bmr like is there ever a situation where you would high chop bmr like say we've got great yields coming off corn this year like does it make sense to raise that cutter head just to try and increase the starch content of that or will it just make it way too soluble i guess the fiber way more available i've seen people do do that keith and and you you will in some years improve the fiber digestibility as well uh like there's there was some work done in, in Michigan State where going from one year to the next, a drought year to a wet year, you know the BMR was the highest in fiber digestibility in both years, but in the in the, in the wet year, um, the fiber digestibility was certainly lowered in the BMR as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you could high chop it. You know you're already taking a twenty percent yield drag or so with BMR though. Um, Does that matter on growing conditions or anything? Like it's always just going to be behind conventional. It, 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 currently, it, it's going to, you know, and 
growing conditions can can have a an even greater impact because when you have a plant that's low and lower in lignin, lignin is vol very instrumental in water transport in the plant, keeping integrity of the xiom and phloem that move water in the plant. So it, they aren't as drought tolerant. We have some new genetics out called Bavalta, which are look to be better. Corteva now um, has three locations that our breeders are really focused on BMR. We view BMR a little bit differently down here than you guys do. I know you have you know a little bit smaller dairies and and BMR tends to be in the diet for all of the animals, certainly not the heifers. We don't want to waste that on the heifers. But um, in larger dairies where we can more easily segregate feed and have different diets, we generally advocate about 20% of the acres, silage acres, to BMR and no more. Uh, again, it's, it's different in, in our dairies than, than your dairy. Some, you have to look at labor management and you know if you're feeding a one-group TMR, you know, then BMR may be in everything. But the data is pretty clear that if you're going to use BMR in one spot in the diet, it should be in the pre-fresh group. That is the best place to use it. If you didn't use it anywhere else, you'll get a bang for your buck in the pre-fresh. And it's funny how that's changed because everybody used to be so scared of it in that in the dry cows. Yeah, no, it's it's going to drive intake. We get those cows eating upwards of 30 pounds of dry matter you know, at calving, they're going to take off and do a lot better. Bill Stone did some nice work on that at Cornell. Um, we've got we've got a document that we share with growers that, that shows all the university research that aligns with what I'm saying. The next best place to use BMR is about the first five or six weeks into lactation. But if you use BMR in the tail ender diet, in the low group, say, you're not going to gain any more milk than if you would have fed them a, a conventional hybrid. But what they are going to do is they're going to eat more, and that's going to lower feed efficiency. We we like to see, and, and you, you've you got more inherent agronomic risk and lower yield. So, you know, again, it's not going to hurt to feed it to the tail enders, but they're going to eat more because it's a low lignin feed. They're just going to, that's what it does. It drives intake, but it's they would have eat, they would have produced just as much milk on a conventional hybrid. What about body condition on them? Like, is it better to be able to manage body condition? Like, say, because like there's going to be a more moderate starch coming from a BMR than there would be a conventional corn. No, not really, Keith. I mean, the starch levels are pretty because tight now because they're shorter plants. I've seen plenty of BMRs in 38, 40 percent starch. Okay. Don't, don't, don't. The new BMRs aren't like the old BMRs. The starch yeah. content's really pretty good. But I got cheaper ways to put body condition on a dairy cow then take a 20% yield drag in the field. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, but again, it's a great feed. We love it. But for guys that, that aren't, that haven't planted BMR, if you could segregate that feed and feed it just to the pre-fresh cows and, and still go back, still have your one group TMR and put it in there if you want. But if you're only going to use it in one spot and you didn't want to plant a whole lot of it, because maybe you're, maybe you're, Maybe you don't have enough acres now for, for your need. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to plant a whole lot of BMR in that situation. But if I was going to plant it, I'd go to the pre-fresh. Yeah, and I think land is quickly becoming the biggest bottleneck in a lot of dairies now. Exactly. And that's why we really went back and looked at the data. You know, if we, it's a great technology It's and and, and the agronomics are getting much, much better. But again, it's it's it, it. I view it as a little bit of a niche product in, in the states. Uh, it, it's more more important 
you know, and, and again, to your point, I mean, look at the milk we're getting out of these cows today. I mean, yes. it's, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And it's unbelievable what has happened to the dairy industry in terms of butterfat out of Holsteins. I mean, you remember when three, six, three, seven was really a good, well, you guys always had higher in Canada, <laughs> but well, the, you know, today these, these Holsteins are, are testing like Jersey's used to. I've seen a lot of change in that. And, and I think it, is a lot of that goes back to a couple things. One is producers be breeding for components, and two, the market's wanting fat, not right. necessarily wanting protein. But exactly. like if you look at the US herd and the Canadian herd, like the fat content on average across all lactations every year has just been creeping up. And I mean, we're yeah. we're getting better at feeding for it, but I think the genetic potential of these cows to produce fat is a lot higher. Producers are looking at making sure that their CFP, like their combined fat and protein, are always positive on these cows because they always want that yep. that increase. So one thing, one thing, Keith, I wanted to I wanted to bring up about harvest timing. Can can I just make a couple oh yeah comments? that that was next on my list. <laughs> okay, so um, our dairy specialist in Michigan, Dan Bollinger, does does some great field studies, and he he just re reported he he looked at yields in Michigan, corn silage yields adjusted to 35% dry matter, anywhere from 25 to 30 tons. And we've developed what's called a one 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 group. For every point increase in dry matter, if the plant is healthy, and that's the caveat to all this, if the plant is healthy, one point to increase in dry matter, you're going to lay down about one point more starch in that corn silage. For every one point increase in dry matter, you're going to increase yield about one percentage more yield at adjusted to 35% dry matter. If you look at, say, going from a third milk line out to three-quarter milk line, and that's what we would advocate, closer to three-quarter milk line in healthy plants. If you go from, say, 32% dry matter out to 37 38% dry matter, you are going to lose about one point of NDF digestibility in a healthy plant. So you're not using the digestibility... 30-hour NDF digestibility. So you're not really losing so digestibility, but you are increasing feed value because you're deposing more starch. Absolutely. Yep. So the point is, the starch level that you increase in a healthy plant is way more important than the very minimal one percentage unit decline in fiber digestibility. And I would contend that that's not biologically significant to the dairy cow. So No, I wouldn't think so. No. So if... in for, for a lot of folks, it's hard to relate to what is a one-point difference in starch mean. So let's put it this way. Every day you leave the corn plant in the field, and it's a healthy corn plant, and it would have yielded you 25 to 30 tons of corn silage. You're going to harvest five bushels more dry grain per acre. If for you 1%. lay at 1%, just one percentage increase. So that's if you, five by four. 39 that's like uh, a couple hundred to so like 195 you, <laughs> yeah if you go Pounds. if you go from 32 to 37 because the plant is healthy and that's what that's what it's all about late season plant health that's why we use fungicides we widen our harvest window we have even more improved late season plant health genetics drives late season plant health but if you go from 32 to 37 percent dry matter you've lost a point of fiber digestibility but you have gained upwards of 20 to 25 bushels an acre more starch in that corn silage. It's huge. It's crazy. Because starch deposition in the corn plant is not linear. 
it's more geometric. And so what happens is it's not, it doesn't increase slowly. It'd be like cutting off a cow, harvesting at a third milk line would be like cutting off a cow's lactation at 200 days. Okay, we're getting we're getting the real profit at the, at the tail end of that, just paying back feed costs and everything else. Why would we shut off our lactation? Well, the corn plant's kind of somewhat similar in that the tremendous amount of starch is laid, laid in late in the maturity of that plant. Now, we, I don't want to go to 40% dry matter on corn silage because I think that's getting hard to pack. And maybe if we start to get into some lower fiber digestibility, but, you know, if we ideally around three quarter milk line, and we're going to have plenty enough moisture to get it packed into a bunker. That's what people don't realize is, you know, droughted corn, which we've got in Nebraska and some other areas in the States here, we've got a heck of a drought going on. Um, and I've been talking to people constantly, it seems over the last couple of weeks about dr droughted corn, but it's really that starch deposition that dries down the corn plant. I think we've said that the last couple of times we've talked mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I've got a slide I use in presentations back in 2012 in Colorado, they had a severe drought and also uh, a couple of fields got hailed on and it looks like broomsticks standing in the field. And yet when we went out in those fields and, and chopped the stalks and, and looked at them, they were 68 and 70% moisture. And the reason they were so wet yet they looked, I mean, completely brown is there was no starch to dry down the stalk. People don't realize it. And, and farmers will, will, all you gotta do is say, hey, remember when you drought, when you chopped that droughted corn silage, how the bunker ran like it never did before? Well, yeah, you wonder why, why does that bunker running with affluent, you would think in the droughted corn silage, because there was no, there was very little starch to dry down the whole gamish. Yeah, so, like if, if we break a corn plant down into three things, like if you break it down into the cob, the leaf and the stalk, Yep. The cob and the leaf aren't going to hold a lot of water, but the stock right. is, well, the stock is the highway for the water to Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where that lignin, low lignin BMR becomes more of an issue in drought because it, you're, I'm, I'm going to steal that from you, Keith. The stock is the highway for the water. Yeah. And that's yeah. where you need that. <laughs> you need lignin in there to keep that uh, highway straight. Yeah. And keep everything moving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think we need to really get into uh, things like density and things like that. Like I've, I've hammered that home enough with a lot of podcasts and I think producers are doing a much better job now of making sure that they have enough weight. They're doing a lot of producers are doing bunker sidewall plastic and vapor barrier on top. Like they're doing a you real know? tremendous job. And I think they've seen the value in doing that and with the crop prices, the way they were, they want to keep more of what they put up and sell more of what they have. Exactly. So they, yeah. Um, the two issues thing... I see with the bunkers, Keith, is guys going too high or even drive over piles and some of the big dairies going too high. And I see this all the time is they're piling it higher than their telehandler can reach with their facer. Mm -hmm. And then, so you got this whole top area that's kind of caving in and that. So, you know, I was just talking to, a dairyman from the West who was deciding whether to build walls or use a drive over pile. And, and I said, you know, the biggest problem with the drive, well, with bunkers is people got a lot of inventory. They pile over the walls and you know, they're not getting it packed. And then with drive over piles, designing it such that it's way taller than the telehandler on the facer. Those are the only two issues I see. And if we're not doing a good job facing, we've kind of 
diminished all the effort we put into getting good compaction. So those are the things I tell people to watch out for. Yeah. And I think you listen to producers that are up on top packing and stuff like that. And like, I think sometimes they can get away with it with haylage, but corn just doesn't want to mesh together. It just wants to roll off the side. Right. So you just lose that porosity. And I've done enough densities too. Like you get enough, get above that wall. Like it really drops. Yep. You're better off to go a little bit wider with your bunks, I think, because I, I producers like they're doing a good job packing, inoculating, facing. Like I, I don't see heating like I used to. No. And no. I think we can cheat a little bit on the other side. If we do go a little bit wider, then maybe save the summer. Like maybe, you know, four inches could be enough if they've got good face quality and good density, right? Yep. And then bacteria <clears throat> products that have the lactobacillus buchneri in it that inhibits yeast growth. Yeast is what causes heating in corn silage and high moisture corn and snaplage. It's yeast. So if we can inhibit yeast, we stop the whole cascade of event that leads to heating. So yeah, there's very few silver bullets, but I'll tell you, Lactobacillus buchneri in my career was one of the silver bullets. That it, it was really interesting back um, when we, before we had buchneri, um, we had a corn silage inoculant, no commercial here, but in fact, we don't even sell it anymore. So it's no commercial, but it was called 1132. And that product used to ferment corn silage so fast. I mean, it was unbelievable how, the activity that those bugs had in that product, they, I mean, the pH would be down in like six hours to terminal pH and you'd save all these sugars. And the, the flip side of it was front end, we fermented the heck out of it. Back end, it heated like there was a fire. It's because get any we saved acid all production. the sugars. Exactly. We saved all the sugars. We had a low pH, but then yeast would grow and yeast would eat the lactic acid that these bugs produced, raise the pH, and then you get aerobic organisms in and you have all this heating and it was really frustrating because you know 30 years ago our goal was just to drop ph as fast as we could but as as our farms got bigger and our faces got bigger on our storage unit it wasn't a you know it wasn't a 20 by 60 silo like i grew up with you know with a small surface area um now we had these wide faces on bunkers and drive over piles and heating was a real issue well buchneri solved that um, yeah, and it's it's amazing. We just don't see the heating like we used to. Thank goodness. The only place I've really seen heating this summer is uh, there's been a little bit in dry cows and a little bit on guys that just maybe face too much, and then we get some rain in it. Yeah, yeah. Like there's just too much leftovers at the end of the day, and then you have the conversation yeah. with the farmer, yeah. like maybe you should just not face as much. And yeah, <laughs> well, it just it seems every third day we're getting rain, so. All of a sudden you face off a little bit too much and it gets wet and it just then it starts to warm up so yep yep exactly and, the, and our high fiber dry cow diets is like starting a fire because there's so much yep. air like it's not a dense diet like a milk cow diet it's very fluffy so uh, the air just kind of gets in there and yep kind of and you can't get yeast don't multiply aerobic bacteria obviously don't multiply and molds for molds don't go vegetative and, and multiply unless there's air I just got yeah. an email from our dairy specialist in Poland this week, and she said, um, we've got alfalfa silage in a bag, and the whole top of it is white mold. What's what's going on? And and I said, well, and, and it's inoculated, and the moisture was right. 
I go, well, is the bag, how lumpy does the bag look? And she sent a picture. Yes. <laughs> it was lumpy. lumpy. <laughs> and so what happens is you get air going down and the top of that, air going back into that bag. Uh, and that's going to fuel, that's going to fuel mold growth. And, and I've seen that, um, you know, obviously if you look at a bag, the lower part, just like a bunker, the density is very good. As you go up in that bag, typically the density, density goes down. And if you've got, you know, it's lumping, you've got air transmission can go down along the side of that bag. I've taken thermal sensitive cameras, pictures of bags. The bottom looks great, just like in a lot of bunkers, but the top will be red and white because there's heating going on. So, yeah, you're right. Anything like that or dry cow diet that's dry, you're going to have air and that's going to fuel the nasties. I did have kind of one question about packing. Can you overpack? And I guess my kind of to preface this a little bit is that I've seen and had producers kind of complain this year is there seems to be like a greeny mold, but that green mold is down a foot and a half from the top. And I'm yep. just wondering like, how is it? The top looks good. They vapor buried it. They've inoculated. It looks pretty clean, but we're getting these mold balls a foot and a half to two feet down in the pile. Like, can you overpack it or is that just, you know, bringing ash or, or like bringing mud up into the pile and we're just seeing tire tracks? No, what you're seeing is water migration. Um, and yes, you, you, you can overpack the top. It's just a waste of diesel fuel to be packing the top for an hour or so because you, you aren't doing anything to compact the bulk of the mass. You're just turning the top layer of cells into mush. Yeah. And what happens is you've got all kinds of nasty organisms in the environment that's blowing onto that feed with the air or ash, as you say, Keith. Um, and what happens, and then we cover it with plastic. So we get a little bit of condensation of moisture underneath the plastic. We've turned the top layer of cells into mush. That water migrates down into the pit. So what you see is classic example of overpacking the top. So what we should do, and then you've got enough moisture for organisms to grow, and there's still air down that far yeah. to grow on the top. So the best thing to do is to pack it like you would the rest of the pile, but get off of it and cover it with your oxygen barrier film and cover it with six mil plastic and, and get off of it. But, you know, spending a lot of time packing the top, you're creating, and, and I see this a lot, that, that, that the layer, like you say, right underneath the top looks okay because that was drier. Okay, that water migrates down and then you got enough available water for those organisms, mold spores, et cetera, to grow. So yeah, that, not always the case, but I would say 80% of the time I see that layer on the top, I ask them, well, how long did you guys spend on the top there packing? Well, we spent a couple hours up there. We wanted to make sure it was really packed well. Well, you haven't done anything for compaction. You've just turned the top into mush. Yeah, because it, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but soil is kind of like, or corn's kind of like soil. Like your first pass is usually your most compaction and then it kind of, it compacts less after that, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Kurt Ruppel, when he was at Cornell University doing his master's, he did work on compaction and bunkers and that sort of thing. That's where some of those, thumb rolls of you know how many pounds of pack tractor and, and you know six inches at one time and all that but what kurt really didn't did not look at i mean it was a great study that he did for his masters but what what um what he didn't look at was really the top you know and that's where that's where 
oxygen barrier film has just been a saver. That's another silver bullet in my mind. Mm -hmm. I had one kind of one more thing on my list here, and it's not really related to making silage this time of year, but I just want to go back and look at, we've had a lot of uneven emergence this year. Like it seemed like the corn didn't all of a sudden pop. Like it, I would say we planted relatively dry and I wonder if producers didn't get deep enough to get into the, into the moisture line. So we've had a lot of uneven emergence and I'm just wondering about toxins with uneven emergence because I, I forget where I go some, it might've been some work out of uh, Guelph that, and it was pertaining to higher incidences of jib in like in ears. Like, so the, the original ears, the year, first years that kind of popped and pollinated in the corn had lower incidence rates of jib than the ones that were maybe delayed by three or five or a week. So I, I, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's, it's relatively new and I'm not an agronomist. So <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm not either, Keith, but I, I mean, I, yeah. I've never heard of that. No. I, okay. I, that's interesting. I'm glad you brought it up. I'll do some digging on that, but I've never, we, we did some studies near Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, looking at late emerging plants. And there were some of these fields that were upwards of 19% of the plants were like 12 to 24 hours late emerging. We, we went back and looked at those plants and what they were is they were significantly like, you know, three to four points lower in starch because okay. you get a shading effect of the other plants and that, but, so, you know, if you've got 20% of your field because you didn't you didn't plant into moisture, you didn't close the trench, you didn't seal that off. I mean, those well, are things we've been working with some of the bigger dairies to really work with plants or set up. You know, a lot of guys will set that planter once and then plant the entire farm to it, whereas different fields maybe require slightly different planting depth into moisture and that sort of thing. So we've looked at the nutritional impact of late emerging and it's significant. But I've never heard anything about maybe jib or toxin production. The other caveat to that, too, is that a lot of people got into some trouble this spring after they did rye or triticale and then planted because there was fields like they were two or three weeks apart, like 50% germinated. Then three weeks later, after we got rain, like then the corn finally came in that. So we had corn that was at like three leaf and corn that was at 12 leaf or eight leaf. Like it, it was it was there was such a disparity in it. And then I had heard that on a, on a podcast somewhere and I'm like, Oh geez, like what are we, what are we going to get into this year? But I guess when it comes time to do some field scouting, like opening up some ears and see if there's jib in them, we'll probably yeah. be your biggest indicator. But just because you see jib doesn't mean there's toxins. Well, and, and jib's usually a later season yeah. disease if I'm, because I've yeah. seen it lots of times where corn silage will come off with pretty low to moderate toxins right. and grain corn will be crazy high. Yep. And so. I think there's been a lot of work by the seed industry to, you know, for natural resistance to that as, as well, because we know you guys particularly have a pro issue up there. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just because of our, like our humidity and our climate, like just being in the oh, Great Lakes Basin. I think it's so, absolutely. Yeah. You haven't seen tar spot up there yet, have you, Keith? I haven't. Well, so a lot of people, I would say more than ever, people put fungicide on. Like yeah. it wasn't even a question with dairy producers this year. Yeah. You know, I get talking about it and saying, because my answer to fungicide is yes. Just talk to your agronomist and figure out which one is the correct mode of action and timing for, for, your, yeah. for your farm. Right. And I would say 
if I had to kind of hazard a guess, I would say 70 plus percent of the acres of corn silage got sprayed with a fungicide. And there was some early tar spot seen, but I think a lot of it was was taken care of with fungicides. So. Yeah, in fact, I, I had an interesting conversation with this Riverview Dairy out of Minnesota, and they've got cows down in Arizona and in South Dakota. But they, um, and their agronomist, uh, Mark Hockel, uh, shared with me some data from Joe Lauer, because they don't really have leaf diseases um, in the western part of the United States. So, you dry? You know, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're and, under uh, pivot most of it, right? Yeah, or all of it's under well, pivot. not not all of it. No, under pivot, you you have a tendency to have more than you would dry land, um, just because of the moisture. But the, what what was interesting that Mark sh shared with me the data and Joe Lauer. If you're going to read anything by an by an academic agronomist about corn silage, nobody knows more than Joe Lauer. He's excellent. I read everything that he publishes, and um, what I, I say. Well, if you've got good late season plant health. And we don't have a problem with foliar diseases. I wouldn't spend the money on fungicides. And Mark said, "No, we're still doing it because Joe has some data that shows that even in in the absence of of disease, fungicides will help maintain that uh, plant health uh, and you know allow us to lay down more starch and, and maybe har win widen our harvest window uh, and still keep that." that feed, you know, that stalk nice and green. So that was kind of interesting to me. I've, I've got, I'm, he sent me a slide that Joe had presented somewhere. I've got to get the full presentation or talk to Joe, but yeah, fungicides, you're right. It's kind of a standard thing here, but not in, you won't find it done in the Western part of the United States very commonly. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I like this year, it just seemed like nobody was even questioning it. It's just, yeah, just do it. And I think a lot of it too, is that we had a pretty tremendous crop, looking crop going into uh pollination so i think people were just throwing some insurance on it to make sure that we got her yeah got it over the finish line right because at that time there was a lot of yield potential i wonder with the amount of rain we've got if we've had some nitrogen leaching and things like that so i guess we'll be able to see in the ears like mm -hmm. the, the tip backs and things like that to see if it got yeah got enough nitrogen or not but yep yep exactly but was there anything else that you kind of had on your list of things that would be uh, no, I got, good information to share for producers? I suppose you're aware in the industry that everybody's looking, well, not everybody, but two major companies um, looking at short corn. Have you, have mm -hmm. you seen any of that in plots up there yet? No. Short corn is very, very interesting um, in that there's actually the same amount of leaves and actually bigger leaves, but the inner node length is much, much shorter. Okay. And, you know, I would predict the whole corn, whole seed corn industry, by the time you're retired, uh, will probably be a lot of short corn out there because it, we don't have the standability issues. But uh, what was very interesting is some preliminary data. We're going to take out some short corn silage plots this year. But is I was really concerned from a silage standpoint, you know, what's going to happen 30 years from now if all the corn is short corn? You know, and I'm talking, you know, where the ear is like waist high. Okay. okay. So, yeah. But what's been interesting, just looking at some preliminary data, is because the stalk diameter is so much bigger, that the silage yield is really almost comparable to a normal, normally tall hybrid. That's um, interesting. Yeah, it really is interesting. I was thinking, oh my goodness, what are we going to do for silage? You know, are we going to have to have certain hybrids or like BMR or whatever that will 
have for taller hybrids for silage and the whole industry because you got to realize in north america only eight percent of the acres are silage so silage is not going to drive corn you know yeah um but i'm really encouraged by some of the data from the short corn so if any of your any of the growers uh hear about um you know companies like pioneer developing short corn don't get too nervous because it could be a lot better than what you think well i it's funny you mentioned that because i had a kind of a producer mentioned in passing that they were going to only going to have BMR and then this other corn. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like when I look at hybrid selection, I look first is what agronomically fits your farm. And then after that, I'm like plant the tallest, highest yielding grain corn in the catalog. That's (laughs) perfect. That's exactly what I recommend. And I'm like, well, I could see, uh, I could see them getting rid of some of these leafies or duels because like I could see, some of the companies getting rid of these so-called yep. leafies and duels because does it really make a difference or should we just be planting a high yielding tall grain variety, right? If you're not going to go to the BMR route, I guess. I, I agree 100%. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the leafies, the leafies are, the data is very clear on the leafies. They look impressive in the field from a 60 mile an hour plot check as you're driving by a field. Oh, that's really going to yield. But what happens is those extra leaves above the ear actually serve as a shading effect to the ear leaf and most of your photosynthase produced in the ear leaf. So th- there's really, uh, leafies are really not anything to consider. Now, there used to be a hybrid back in the old days called TMF94. Um, and that was it. a heck of a hybrid. That was a heck of a hybrid and it had nothing. To it was tall. Them. It was always it was, a foot taller, two feet taller and everything yep. else. And yep. good starch. Yep. Uh, the thing is, it wasn't a 94-day hybrid. It was a 102-day hybrid. But uh, um, the, the point is, uh, leafies probably are not the future. Um, but like you said, the tallest tallest uh, grain hybrid is is really. Now, I will. I, I don't want to give a bad rap to the word dual. Um, because really, when you're advocating a tall grain hybrid, Keith, you're saying it kind of has a dual purpose. We've kind of yeah. we've kind of gotten away from that. And, you know, major seed companies... Are, are profiling their genetics. There's there's really very few companies other than Pioneer, I mean, other than looking at BMR. Um, you know, when somebody says it's a silage hybrid, can I tell you what it is? It's an older grain hybrid that's come down on the price card because dairy farmers are not going to buy, pay as much for corn silage as they do for grain. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's much more of a pricing issue around corn silage uh, hybrids. But again, it's it's dual purpose. We, we've gotten away from it. It kind of sounds bad, but actually, it's it's true because you know, I mean, you want a hybrid that's going to give you a lot of starch, and there is not significant differences in fiber digestibility if hybrids are grown in the same field and get the same growing environment. There is no difference. Yeah. Um, so it's that tall grain hybrid that's best. But don't be scared if the short if you start to see a lot of short hybrids being commercialized, and we will be commercializing short hybrids probably in two years. Um, yeah. that they're going to, they're going to yield a lot, lot better for silage than what you think. Well, I know last year we had a lot because we were super, super dry until August, I guess last year. And we had a lot of corn that was like physically shorter. Like it was a lot of times you go in the corn top of the tassel, six, six and a half feet. You could almost see across it. Not quite like I'm six feet tall, six foot one when I'm wearing my my mud boots but um but you can almost like see across it and 
I wouldn't say we yielded that much less than say a year where we have a little bit taller plant. Yeah. Well, green like, yields half of the greens, half of the yield. So if you've got green, yeah. green, you know, I mean, and the fiber and it always feeds a little better because the fiber digestibility. Well, and, 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 and like our 30 hours on corn last year, a lot of them were like between 60 and 65 on conventionals. Yeah. And our yeah. BMRs were eight to 10 points higher than that. Like they're just absolute rocket fuel exactly. when it, when you look at fiber digestibility. And that's why I wanted to start off the podcast with tampering that a little bit, because I don't yeah. think this year's corn crop yeah. is going to be what we're coming off of, which happens a lot. Like I, I, yep. I prefer stressed corn. Like if you're looking at feeding it, I always find it feeds better. You just don't get as much of it. Right. Like, right. but it seems like even with alfalfa too, is like the years where it's dry and you don't get a lot of yield still energy's higher fibers lower like it's just a, a higher quality on paper forage where a year like this year like i haven't seen anything very impressive when it comes to alfalfa haylage numbers like proteins are moderate fibers are high digestibilities are low energies moderate to low so it gets me thinking about this year's corn like are we going to see the same thing in there and do we have to change our management practices to adjust for that difference in the growing season so back to your early comment though keith if you've got all kinds of haylage but it isn't that great that's where you're kind of thinking maybe we should high chop the corn silage because the quality and of put day. like yeah. absolute just 42 44 corn up and like starch wise yeah. and if we can get there or even up, yeah. like even if we have to nurse it up into the high 30s i think would be beneficial to producers thinking about all the hay that we have sitting there and we're going to probably feed like i would say in ontario uh we're we're typically 60 to 70 percent of our dry matter is coming from corn silage and i don't think we'll get there this year just because we have so much hay that we're we're gonna have to feed the hay haylage yeah sorry. interesting that yeah. i was i was at a very large uh alfalfa grower in, in north dakota last week and we talked a lot about you know the drought stress on on alfalfa will have lower stems, so our leaf to stem ratio is higher, meaning higher quality. Same thing kind of applies to corn. If you got a shorter corn plant, your grain to stover ratio can often be higher. You know, so that's gives you that quality there. Plus, the the fiber digestibility is better in the corn plant. But yeah, that yeah, I think that makes some sense to think about high chopping this year. If if the quality of the alfalfa isn't quite where you want it, yeah, 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 and. It's great looking at all these full bunks, especially coming off a year where, like last year, where we did not have a ton of inventory. And, and you'd seen that early in the spring with the amount of spring forages that were grown. Your rise in triticales, like farmers just needed, we needed to build inventory. So that those decisions were made last year when we had, you know, corn silage coming off in mid-September. Perfect time to get some of those crops in. This year we're looking... Yeah. I'm thinking like the earliest that we're going to see any corn silage coming off here in this part of Ontario would be around the 20th to 25th. Like it, we're just, we're behind and the corn just, we're losing daylight. We're losing temperature at night. We're, we got lots of moisture. It's just, it's maturing at a, at a snail's pace right now. <laughs> and so. we're already chopping in, Northwest Iowa, we're chopping. Oh, are they okay? Them. I was going to ask you that if you if you'd seen the choppers going yet down. Oh yeah, Midwest. big time. <laughs> yeah, and so like considerations for yield, like do they have to put up that much more silage? Because instead of like you run into a thing like 
like last year, we put up a lot of corn silage, but we're also feeding a lot of corn silage and harvest is going to be delayed by three weeks. Like there's an inventory concern on that too, I think. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. No, Bill, I, uh, I, I truly appreciate you coming on the podcast again. I know, uh, it's, uh, you've been practicing golfing a lot from what I've heard and I'm not sure <laughs> who's spreading <laughs> those rumors. So but no, I, I, I truly appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and it's always a great conversation and, and a ton of insight. You see, you've seen it all over the world and have a, have a vast uh, amount of experience and I, and I really do appreciate it. So thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me, Keith. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmer's Digest is brought to you by the dairy team at Wallenstein Feed and Supply Limited. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Schoonerwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.